So we, um, we've been in a season preparing for what actually kind of began this week in a lot of churches. So uh, the Lenten journey officially began on Wednesday for a lot of uh, the global church. Um, but we're taking a little bit more time before we kind of officially move into kind of our Lenten rhythms um, to prepare, um, to actually make one more preparatory stop or kind of a pass-through as we move from parables to persons, from stories to relationships, all for the intent that as we enter into Lent, that our hearts would be readied for the home stretch. The Lent, this kind of journey towards, um, towards Easter morning, um, is kind of a, a long journey, but it actually kind of will go pretty quickly, but that our hearts are ready for it, um, and more so than just being ready for the journey ahead, um, that we'll actually be ready for the place that we get to, to actually living with Christ, living with God, alive again with us. In some ways, Jesus' person and purpose have been presumed in the stories He has told. The stories of paradox and preparation that we spent the first six weeks of our new year entering into. In a lot of ways, all the stories that we've told that we've been in, into over this, this course of 2024 so far have been stories Jesus has told. Stories that He's crafted particularly with intention to invite us in to see God's kingdom and our place within it. But... In some ways, Jesus' persons always just kind of presume somewhere within the story, right? Like it's something we kind of talk about after kind of postscript, right? But the journey to Lent, the chosen pilgrimage of bright sadness, cannot be primarily imaginative. No matter how formative the word pictures have been for us so far, no matter how good it's been to try to find ourselves in the stories, in the end, this, the journey of Lent isn't figurative. It's actually literal. The movement towards the cross and the tomb and the empty grave is for, first and foremost an actual event. An actual journey taken by Jesus that is his answer in awesome deeds to our most fundamental need. Our need for righteousness, to relate rightly to God, to one another, to the earth. Relationship um, whole and true and right. A journey Jesus undertook for our sake and for the joy set before him. The joy of his communion and our communion together with him and with the Father. And, and it's a story that, um, that, as Luke tells us, is one that goes through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. That when Jesus literally takes the move towards the cross, it begins at Jericho. So if you notice in Luke 19, that's where, if you have your Bibles, that's where you turn. That's where we're going to be today. Just before that, um, at the end of Luke 18, in verse 35, there's this little story that happens just before. It says, as Jesus drew near to Jericho... The Old Testament entry into the promised land, that's Jericho. Remember the story, walking around the walls with the trumpets and everything. This is the first kind of step of faith of God's people into the land of promise, towards the land of promise. It's where it began, their story of entering into the promised land began. It's also the place where the story of Jesus' turn to the cross began, is drawing us into what will be our promised land. But it's not its final destination. Jericho is a pass-through, just as it was in the Old Testament, so it is in the New. And there, at the, outside of Jericho, is a blind man sitting by the roadside begging, where he would have been every day, beseeching local merchants, farmers, and travelers along their way in and out of town. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. It wasn't normal for crowds to line the roads in and out of a town. Like, it's not like the busy streets of Dallas where there's cars passing all the time, right? Even Jericho, a large populous town, would have been a quieter place. The roads, especially outside of the town, there would have just been people going along. But crowds outside of town, outside of the walls, would have been abnormal. So something must be up. 
Someone important must be on their way into town. That's the only reason crowds go outside of the town in mass, because someone of honor is coming in. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. The citizens were outside the walls waiting for Jesus, looking forward to his arrival. His reputation had preceded him, and they were ready to welcome him, but weren't, weren't really sure of exactly what or who or why he deserved such honor. Was he a prophet, a preacher, a storyteller, a miracle worker, a healer, the next in a long line of liberating rebels or more? The name the crowd gives Jesus is too vague to know for sure. He's just Jesus of Nazareth. But one person sees him differently. In verse 42, it says, And the blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, king. That's what the title, the blind man cries out, means. King, like the one from Psalm 21, who is blessed to be a blessing. Jesus, king, who makes right what is wrong, victorious over the enemy, and so too the people's failings, living in the trust of the love of the Most High. The blind man, it seems, saw better than the crowd, ironically enough. And Jesus said to him, the blind man, recover, receive what was yours but lost, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has restored you and made you whole. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God and all the people. When they saw it, gave praise to God. Our first two weeks of preparation for land have, Lord willing, allowed us to see like the blind man, recognizing Jesus as more than a good storyteller more than a prophet or a quick fixer, but as the son of David, the king, who makes right for us what we cannot make right for ourselves, who we need to be made well, restored, whole, and holy. So with this scene in mind, I want you to pray with me before we jump into our story for today that Christine's going to read for us. Father, we thank you that the way you reveal yourself to us um, is revealing. It leads us into a place of recognizing you in ways that um, go beyond just our immediate experience um, of what we long for, what we need, what we hope for. And so I pray today as we, Lord, make one last preparation for this season before we too, like Jesus, take our turn towards Jerusalem and and to the cross, um, that you would help us to see what blind men see, to receive what blind men desire, and follow you. All this we pray in your son's name. Amen. Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but could not on account of the crowd because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, He has gone in to spend the night with a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give it to the poor, And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. All right, so 
Jesus is now on his way out of town. In between the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19, Jericho's trip is done. It's over. Um, again, as the crowd heard these things, uh, in just a couple, a couple of verses later, the verses immediately following our story, has Jesus drawn near to Jerusalem? In verse nine, chapter 19, verse 11, um, Jesus gets near to Jerusalem, and then he enters Jerusalem to the swaying palms and Hosanna shouts that we all know of, um, uh, Palm Sunday. And so Jesus at this point is in Luke's gospel on a direct route to the Passover activities in Jerusalem. So Jesus' mind is already set. He knows what he's walking towards. And so that's why there's kind of a quick pace, right? It goes, Jesus is entering the town. He heals a blind man. He passes through the town, and there's no story in between. He just came in. On his way in, he did something. On his way out, he has an interaction. And it's because his mind is set, his heart is set. Everything's moving towards the cross, moving towards Jerusalem, moving towards what's about to take place in front of him. He's on his way to the remembrance of the awesome deed of God to make right, to save to say, bringing his people out of oppression and enslavement. Jesus' move to Jerusalem isn't just a general move. It's a move towards the Passover, right? This is all that's what's happening. So in a few days from time, from this story where this story takes place, the Passover will be celebrated. So that means not just that Jesus is understanding what, what he's walking into, but the whole crowd would understand, like, hey, in a few days, in a few days' time, like our entire nation's going to come together and remember when, we're, when, we, we, uh, when we've been liberated. When God acted once to save us out of oppression and to take us into the land that is now ours, a land that is um, a life with God, and that God would someday do that again. And as we know, Jesus is ultimately moving towards his awesome deed of making right, his awesome deed of freeing the bound and overcoming the enemy. Like the, that all this is taking place, right? All this is happening. We know this is happening. Jesus knows this is what's moving towards. And even those that don't recognize in Jesus what he's about to do yet, still have this kind of national mentality of, hey, here's what's happening. Our nation is, is about to come together to remember being liberated once, and then we'll be liberated again. We're going to be freed again, right? And so, But before we get there, again, Jesus passes through Jericho. On the road in, he healed the blind man. And presumably, especially he would have entered the town for a bit, but as the story goes, not for too long. For now, he's passing through, um, again, as verse 1 tells us, Jesus is on his way somewhere. He has set his attention on what's next for him and for us. And again, while we may pass quickly over the fact that Jesus' stop in Jericho was brief, the crowd that had showed up to honor him, the crowd that had come out of the village outside of the walls who had lined the road where the blind man was, they would not have, uh, they would not have been so quick to be impressed by Jesus' quick trot onto Jerusalem. Jesus' passing through was actually meant, means that he refused the hospitality of the town. If a town sends people out to line up, it's a, it's a sign of honor. So the assumption is that when you get into town, that you'll be received at some sort of banquet, that you'll do, have some sort of like proclamation, that everything that Jesus had kind of done, the stories that had preceded him, that he would get to do those in the town. He'd spend time in the town. He'd be honored in the town. He'd eat in the town. He'd say the night in the town, at least the night before he goes on. And Jesus skips all of that, passes through all that. To pass through all that means Jesus would have to have refused the hospitality of the town. And that, while that may not seem like a big deal to us, that would have been a major thing in, in first century like Middle East, right? Even today, if you were to, to go into a Middle Eastern town and they had prepared something for you and you were to say no, it would be super offensive, right? 
So Jesus is already kind of like, hey, listen, like this is cool. I know what you, you, you're wanting things from me, but I'm, I've got, I've got an, another way to go. I've got a long ways to go. I'm, I'm continuing to move on. And so we can't just pass over the, brief, the briefness of Jesus' stay. Um, it means something. And I'll show you what it means in the story. So again, to line the road of entry was a communal acknowledgement of someone's greatness. Though as we saw, the crowd, the town, didn't know exactly why Jesus was great. It was just Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the storyteller. Jesus the prophet. Jesus the, the healer. Jesus the one who's, who's, who's gathering up a bunch of followers to overthrow the, the, uh, the leadership and the, the oppressors and all those kind of things, right? He's, just, he's kind of a general Jesus, right? The blind man saw something different. And the crowd at least joined in the praise once they saw what Jesus did to the blind man. But at the same time, they didn't really see Jesus fully for who he was. But again, what we need to note is that they would have prepared for Jesus a feast along with a place to stay equal to his hospitality. They offered Jesus what was expected by custom and law. Like this is what you do, what you do for someone of honor in your town. Yet Jesus kept walking right on through the town, and that's where our story picks up. So our story happens after Jesus has refused to be this general Jesus for the town. He's refused to kind of be that. He's walking, walking through. But word passed quickly that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't hanging around, and so there would have been no sermons, no miracles, other than the one on the way in, which would have gotten everybody expectant, right? You think, like, now everybody's going to get really excited, like, right? He healed the blind man. He made him see. And so now, look what's he going to do in our town. But there's not even a good, confusing story. There's no even sit down and for parables. There's no, we're, we're done with those. But here's the thing. If Jesus had stopped, Zacchaeus would have not had a chance to see him. Crowds were dangerous to guys like Zacchaeus. Now, I know we know all the story of Zacchaeus, right? And what, like we sing it. Anybody grow up singing? We little man, was he? Yeah, even Cohen's like, yeah, I'll do it right now. Um, it's great. So we've kind of like, we've, we've, we've maybe a little bit over-kidized uh, this story a little bit, right? We think of Zacchaeus as just this short person who had a hard time seeing, who really wanted to see Jesus, so he climbed up in a tree like in the middle of town to see Jesus coming through and how sweet of a story it is, right? Yeah, like he was a tax collector, so he's a bad guy, and, but like he becomes a good guy and all that kind of stuff. And so we kind, of, we kind of make this a little kiddish when in reality, like the trees outside of town, so trees in the first, in first century um, um, Palestine weren't actually by law allowed to be in town um, because of the way towns were built. So they had to be, like you can actually find this in the Midrash and some of the Jewish um, Talmuds, like they had to be a minimum of at least 125 feet from the walls outside of town. So like tr for trees to start. So like, so like the, to have a tree, you're not going to find a tree in town. You'll find a tree in maybe somebody's court, courtyard or whatever, like of wealth or whatever, but in the town itself, there's no trees. So to get to a tree means he's, he's got to get out of town. And so he knows Jesus is going out of town. And Zacchaeus, while, yes, he's short, the short thing is, is actually just kind of like an understanding that like being in a crowd would have been hard for Zacchaeus. Not just hard because he can see, but because crowds are really dangerous for a guy like Zacchaeus. Like, and because he's short, he can't just stand at the back of a crowd. So like if he was a tall guy, he could just kind of stand at the back of the crowd and kind of back with a wall along his back and he could see what was happening. But because he's short, he can't do that. So in order for him to actually see what he wants to see, he's going to have to get into a crowd. But he doesn't want to get into a crowd. He'd have to get into the middle of the crowd and make his way towards the front if he wanted to see, but there would be no way 
that anybody would make, make a way for him, right? Because he's a tax collector and he's rich. But listen, when it says he's rich, it's, meant to, it's telling us like not only is he a tax collector who has made a lot off the people, he's profited a lot off of his, like, um, his taking advantage of the people, but like being rich, he would have been, he would have, it would have been expected for the town to show him some sort of honor, right? Wealthy people get shown honor, right? But like because he's a tax collector and he's rich, people aren't going to make a way for him. They're not going to move in part form like they would a normal, like wealthy person. But worse than just the insult of, hey, he's got these riches and yet he doesn't get the civility of, of a person of wealth, the honor of a person of wealth. But much worse than that insult is that in a crowd like this, an extortioner or a traitor is what tax collectors are considered, would literally have to watch his back or his life would be at an end. Crowds were really dangerous for tax collectors. A quick flash of the knife, a stifled cry, and his life would be over. Only after the crowd moved on would his body be found, and by then the perpetrators would have disappeared. And the town would have quietly rejoiced at their freedom from the oppressor's thorn, at least temporarily. Because again, Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector, and he's the richest of the tax collectors. If we get rid of this guy, we get rid of the oppressor. Right? So when Zacchaeus says he's short and he can't see, it's like, okay, so that means he can't go and see without his back being covered. Like he can't stand along a wall and see above the crowd, which he might be able to kind of do if he was a taller guy. So you're going to have to get in the crowd. But if he gets in a crowd, he's dead. The likelihood of him making it through the crowd is pretty low, especially when everybody's worked up. So Zacchaeus, and we're just going to call him Z from here on out because his name is, is, is long. Um, so Zacchaeus, he wants to see who Jesus was. Look at that in verse 3. It doesn't say he just wants to see Jesus. He wants to find out who Jesus really is. To see for himself, is Jesus of Nazareth, this general Jesus, or is he something more? Perhaps the blind man's proclamation had made its way to Z's ears, right? King of, son of David, king, well, hold on, maybe this is a different cat, right? I want to see who this is. Maybe this is the guy that overthrows the oppressor which I kind of work for, right? Like, think about just the emotions and the thought of that, right? Like, I, I'm Jew, but I work for the Romans, and here's the promised King of David, the Messiah, who's supposed to overthrow the oppressive government that I work for and attached to. Is this really the guy? Is this the, really the guy that's going to do this? So we don't really know. Is he curious because he's, something's drawing him to Jesus out of a longing deep in his soul, or is he curious because, hey, man, this is going to throw off his entire system, his life, his livelihood, or the potential of it, right? We don't really know what's drawing him to see Jesus. We just know that he wants to know who Jesus was. Something about Jesus compelled him to find out who Jesus was. And so he'll have to go out in front of the crowd into a place advantageous for his height and his well-being. And the only way to see who Jesus was was to humble himself or do the humiliating thing of running and climbing a tree. Both were no-nos for persons of dignity in the first century and still today, right? We talked about the running last week. Men don't run, especially men of nobility. And, and men, especially of nobility, don't climb trees. So that kiss was going to have to make a little bit of a fool of himself if he wanted to see who Jesus was. So at least his motivation is pretty desperate, right? Like there's something in him. There's a deep drive. 
whatever the whatever the motivation was, it was it was deeply driven for him to do this, right? So whether it was it was a genuine, I'm curious about Jesus because I want something from him, or I'm curious about Jesus because I fear what Jesus might be, right? And I want to know. Either way, there's strong emotions compel him to do this thing of running and climbing a tree. Ideally, Z would have hoped his humiliating acts would be short-lived and unnoticed, right? He's getting out ahead of Jesus. He's going far out ahead of town. He knows he's passing through. If he can get to the tree far enough outside, maybe he can get up without being seen. Quickly, he'd disappear up into the trees and then and into a sycamore's dense foliage. Like a sycamore tree is like, has enough like, leaves and stuff around it that maybe he can hide, right? It's like he can get up there and nobody can see him. He'll be camouflaged. Unfortunately for Zacchaeus, his plan for a semi-incognito humiliation goes awfully awry. And we know this because when Jesus finally makes his way to the place, in the scripture that's what it says, just to the place, to the tree, excuse me, the crowd is less focused on Jesus and more so on the wee little man, certainly wishing probably at this point that he was even smaller than he was up in the tree. After all, if Jesus can see Zacchaeus, soak in the crowd, Right? If Jesus can see him, everybody else can see him. Probably the reason Jesus sees him is because everybody else sees him. And the fact that Jesus knew his name. Now listen to this. We don't miss this. The fact that Jesus knew his name when Jesus was not from Jericho implies that Jesus learned the name of the treed publican from the crowd that is insulting him and humiliated and this humiliated collaborator, the crowd that is flinging at him all the choice insults that they have wanted to use for years in his office but could not using any four-letter word that comes to mind, kind of like the Pharisee did in the first parable of our preparation for Lent. One insult stimulates another, quickly darkening the atmosphere and likely producing around this tree a whiff of anticipated violence. Again, remember, Zacchaeus doesn't get into the crowd because he fears for his life. Now the crowd has him treed. Think about like, how scary that would have been, right? How intense that would have been. Especially when, like, like, maybe if just one person sees him, they make fun of him. But then all of a sudden, the crowd's like, hey, wait a minute. We got this guy exactly where we want him. This guy that takes advantage of us, takes from us, is a physical representation of all that we hate, of all the hatred towards us, of everything we don't want to be. They have him treed. After all, remember, the Passover... The liberation, the remembrance of liberation and the defeat of the oppressor is just down the road physically and on the calendar. And so it's on their minds too. Hey, maybe this could be our chance to be free. We get Zacchaeus. We get the chief tax collector out. Especially if the son of David's here, the Messiah's here, we can really overthrow this guy. Apparently, Z's fear of the crowd was not overblown or avoided. Unlike the prodigal, the, the need driving Zacchaeus to look for a different life was coming face to face with the consequences of his choice. Unlike the prodigal, he didn't get to avoid the ear of the community. But Jesus sizes up the situation, and though on his way to the cross, unwilling to stop for the usual and expected acts of ministry or response, nevertheless, Jesus stops under the tree and does something unexpected. First, let me tell you what would have been expected of Jesus. Jesus would have been expected to accept the town's prepared and certainly offered hospitality and homage. Like, that's what would have been expected. For Jesus not to do that is an unexpected thing. 
But perhaps they could overlook the seeming slight since Jesus was perhaps the son of David, the Messiah King, on a mission they could only somewhat understand and surely would take him back to the place of the throne to where he could be called King in Jerusalem as he would be in just a few short days. Read verse 38 in chapter 19. Jesus will be called King as he comes in. So maybe him not stopping, they can kind of overlook because he's king and he's got to get back to the, the place where the throne is, to Jerusalem, just to take back over things. But Jesus also would have been expected to join the accusations against that kiss, especially because he was the son of David, the Messiah King. Even if his joining in would have been for the purpose of bringing greater civility to the situation, even if his joining in was meant to calm the crowd, Mercy for Zacchaeus would be expected in the form of rebuke and direction. One Middle Eastern scholar notes that what the crowd would have expected from any good rabbi, much less Messiah King, is something like this. Zacchaeus, you are a collaborator. You're in with the, you're in with the oppressors, right? You're an oppressor of these people. You have drained the economic life blood of your people and given it to the imperialists. You've betrayed your country and your God. This community's hatred of you is fully justified. You must quit your job, repent, journey to Jerusalem for ceremonial purification, return to Jericho, and apply yourself to keeping the law. If you're willing to do these things, on the next trip to Jericho, I'll enter your purified house and offer my congratulations. That is what the expected response would have been. A rebuke? You're an oppressor, because he's just calling it out what is true. That's what he is. He's a collaborator with the oppressor. How can he continue to do his job and honor the people? You can't. So you got to quit your job, right? Like your job is an indication that we are not completely free people, right? You've got to go and be cleanse yourself purified religiously, like you've defiled yourself in your interactions with the Gentiles in your way of life. And so you need to go become ceremonially clean and then live a life that is actually in step with the, with the, the law that you say is now like what you want. And then we can actually have a relationship. I can actually come into your house. That was what every rabbi would have said to Zacchaeus. Every single rabbi, every Pharisee, every other person, especially the Messiah, right? That's what would have been expected. A rebuke and a direction. How many of us have experienced that in our own life of faith? In the midst of our own, like, sin and messiness, right? In our own life. Like a rebuke, but with direction. Clean up, get after it, get better. Then, we'll, then we can talk about relationship. How many of us think that's the way life of faith actually works? That God rebukes us, gives us direction, and only after that are we then in, enter, able to enter into a relationship. If, you, if you're shaking your head, no, like that's not me, then you've probably not been in church for very long. Because that's the reality of what most of us think. That's, this is religion, 101, right? That's human religion. That's what we do. Even with the best intentions, generally this is how we talk about it. Look, Zacchaeus was shown mercy. He was shown mercy because he was rebuked. He was called out for what he was. He was shown mercy because he was given direction. He wasn't just punished. There was at least opportunity for him, right? And that's what we think Jesus would do, right? But that is not what Jesus does. And this is what's unsettling for us. Jesus offers no rebuke of Zacchaeus. No stipulation for mercy or restoration as justice. Instead, Jesus invites himself to stay the night at Zacchaeus' house. Remember, Jesus had rejected the expected and offered hospitality of the people who had done everything to prepare a way for Jesus, to show him honor. They went outside the town to welcome him in. 
right? They created a banquet, which he said no to. They had a house for him to stay at, which he said no to. Jesus goes out, he engages a publican, a tax collector, a trader, and instead of rebuking him and calling him into a whole life, Jesus invites himself over to his house. And Jesus chooses his own form of hospitality, which is an absolute no-no. I know in our world, we think like, like, when we, like we go somewhere that we get to choose as guests how things should operate. Like, that is absolutely not true in a Middle Eastern context today or then. You never ask for hospitality. You respond to what is offered, right? You never choose hospi- your particular version of hospitality. And on top of that, Jesus doesn't just choose his own hospitality, but chooses the welcome and the curiosity of a traitor, an exploiter, a sinner, perhaps a sinner that is literally about to die for his sins. The kiss joyfully jumps at the offer of salvation. Literal salvation, right? At being found through this unexpected demonstration of what is costly love. He leaves the tree, receives Jesus into his home, and comes to see Jesus for who Jesus really is. Lord, verse 8 is what he calls him. But notice why Zacchaeus can do this in verse 7. And when they, the crowd, the people around the tree, around Jesus, when they saw it, when they saw what Jesus was doing and how he responded, they grumbled, they murmured, they had an indignant complaint against Jesus. It's actually the same word that's used for the people in, uh, uh, in the Old Testament when they leave uh, um, Egypt and go into the, like, the, the, the stretch of land where like, they're on their way to the promised land and they grumble and complain against God because life isn't working out the way they expected it to. Their freedom was something different than they expected. Same word, same like agitation. And they say, he is gone, Jesus is gone to spend the night, is what the word literally means, with a man who is a sinner. Not just to go over to his house and to walk in, which would have been enough to defile Jesus, but to actually stay the night with him. To be one who like, receives the hospitality of Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus came down from the tree and lived because Jesus stops, Jesus sees him, Jesus speaks his name, calls him into a relationship by showing him honor, by saying, I'll go to your house. And don't miss this. And in doing so, he redirects the crowd's hostility towards himself. When Jesus gets to the tree, the crowd is hostile against Zacchaeus. When Jesus leaves the tree, the crowd is hostile towards Jesus. He takes on the hostility that was bent towards Zacchaeus for himself. The hostility of the crowd is now turned from Zacchaeus to Jesus. Jesus stands in Zacchaeus' place takes on his sins as the defiled one ritually and physically by entering into his home and is willing to pay the price for Zacchaeus' life. In this case, right now, in this moment, and as we'll see later on down the road forever, right? What happens next is often misconstrued in our retellings, usually because we read it too quickly and with a little appreciation for the details of the account and for what just happened at the tree. Zacchaeus' repentance his turning and supposed giving are not the prerequisite of Jesus' final proclamation. They are a response in kind to what Zacchaeus has already received at the tree. When Zacchaeus gives himself, gives up what he's had and what he's taken, and gives it back, 
It's not, that isn't what leads Jesus to say salvation is here. In the sense of somehow now salvation is here because Zacchaeus has done this. What Zacchaeus is doing is he's actually responding in the same sacrificial way that Jesus just responded to him at the tree. Jesus has found lodging with Zacchaeus, which is the literal meaning of stay at your house today in verse 5. He has knocked as it were and was led in. And as would be the custom for a person of honor, the same custom that it would have been extended to Jesus by the town, but which Jesus passed on, a banquet would have been offered. A guy like Zacchaeus would have no problem rolling out the red carpet at a simple command to his servants. He's rich, remember? And it's here, reclining at the table with Zacchaeus, unprompted by Jesus, but undoubtedly sensing an internal pressure to respond to what has been done for him, the sacrifice made for him, the courage and compassion and honor Jesus showed him. Zacchaeus, look in verse, verse, verse 8. Zacchaeus stands. It points out that he stands. It means because they were reclining at the table before. He stands and offers a demonstrative demonstration, a demonstrative demonstration of what Jesus has really done. Made him right by his communion. Made him right by his honoring him. Verse 8 reads, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Listen, in traditional Middle Eastern style, says one author, Zacchaeus exaggerates in order to demonstrate his sincerity. We think of this as like, now Zacchaeus is like giving up everything, right? He's like, he's, 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 this is a true repentance, true changing of heart. But Zacchaeus is actually exaggerating. Showing us that his heart is actually true, but he's exaggerating. He's pledging to give away half of his assets, and then from the half that's left, pay back fourfold what he has cheated. Yet, it's, yet if you do the math, the money he has, if the money he's ever collected unjustly for the community over the years ever amounts to roughly 13% of his remaining 50%, he won't fulfill his pledge. He can't do it. In other words, the math doesn't add up. The math doesn't add up. This repentance of Zacchaeus that we usually make is repentance. Again, the repentance, this isn't repentance. This is response to what's actually already been done for him. So that's the first thing that's different. The second, we kind of take this as like, man, he's going above and beyond and he's given everything, right? Like he literally cannot live up to his promise. It's not like mathematically possible for him to do the thing that he says he's going to do. Zacchaeus is promising something he cannot deliver. And listen, no one expects Zacchaeus to do so. But in Middle Eastern custom, especially first century, a measured realistic promise, the one we might expect, the one that that would have aligned um, with the expected mercy rebuke of a rabbi, maybe. They expected, hey, listen, I'm going to stop and quit my job and go down to Jerusalem and get, get right and purified and all that kind of stuff. That kind of response, the thing that he could actually do, if he just said that, would have been understood to mean it's all just for show. I know we don't get that, right? But like Zacchaeus is saying, it's show. And the only way for me to show that it's not show is to make a show out of it. Because that's the custom. If he'd have been measured in his response, nobody would have thought he would have fulfilled it. In good village fashion, Zacchaeus affirms his sincerity, his change of heart and actions, his new life by exaggeration. 
If he does not exaggerate, the guests, the disciples, Jesus, and the community will think he means the opposite. Listen, we don't know how the prodigal responded to the father's character, the father character's humility, his costly actions and affection. Nor do we know if the older son came into the party after the father character again humbled himself to beseech and remind the son of the affection and possessions already his. But here we are given a rare glimpse of the world of a recipient of costly love, of awesome deeds done to make right. And his response is profoundly instructive. Zacchaeus, as one commentator notes, starts from where he is, not from where others expect him to be. There's no ritual cleansing, no checklist of faith, no, no overtly religious pious acts are promised or planned. Only a response that reflects Jesus' action towards him. A, a, an action that actually unites, brings in for the benefit and restoration of community and communion. That's what Jesus did, right? He invited himself into Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus into his life. Right? And that's what Zacchaeus' response is. I will do whatever is necessary to restore myself back into relationship with the people that I've wronged. That's what his response is. Only response, again, that reflects Jesus' actions towards him. Publicly committing himself to begin showing costly love, deeds done to make right to the community he's harmed. That kiss, in other words, reflects back to others what has been done for him by Jesus. What he has received from Jesus is what he offers to others. And that, says Jesus says in verse 9, is salvation. Read verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus' response in kind is salvation's arrival. Not Zacchaeus' salvation alone, but the restoration of communion, of righteousness, of right relating to his community and God. Because what does Zacchaeus promise? Again, not religious pious acts. Not that any of those things are necessarily bad. But he promises restoration of communion, community, being made right. Because he's been made right. He's been brought into relationship. And so he promises right relationship. And that's when salvation arrives. Not just for Zacchaeus, but for the whole community. Because now the chief tax collector is one who says, I'm not against you, I'm for you. Jesus' actions made possible the lost being sought and saved. And ironically, the crowd that wanted at the tree something that, to happen to, so that they would, they would be free of their oppressor is now actually getting to receive the very thing they wanted. The crowd is actually getting what they wanted. The oppressor freed not to oppress. A traitor no longer working against them, but for them and with them. A community different, all because of Jesus' actions and a sinner's response. Listen, in preparation for the lengthening light of Jesus' death and resurrection, to which will be exposed over the coming days of Lynch's journey, we've asked Three questions. We've been asked three questions by the parables to persons. When the light hits us and our deepest, most fundamental human need is exposed, do we know where we are and what's being done for us? That was our first story. Do we know where we are? 
We're at the atonement sacrifice when our hearts are exposed and we don't like what we see. Do we try to cover it up by justifying ourselves? Or do we accept and plead for what's being done to be done for us? Will we plan, pout, or recognize what's being and been given for us? In the story last week. Are we ones who we know like we want to get back to where we've left? We want to get to where, where we're, we're restored again, where life is different than it was. Are we, do we plan our way in, back into the home like the youngest son? Do we pout because we haven't received what we thought life would be like? Because it's not our work isn't earning the kind of favor that we would, had imagined. Or do we recognize what's already been given for us? Do we see what the Father has done for us? And then today, will we give what's expected? In response to Jesus, not just Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, son of David, the one who comes to the tree to take on our sins, do we respond with the expectations of the culture, even our religious culture, or do we respond in kind? To a life of reconciliation. Because we've been reconciled. For a few moments, we're going to prayerfully consider these questions. And then we'll have about five minutes or so to share what's come to light through the Spirit and the Scriptures for you in this preparation for Lent. So we'll take a couple minutes by ourselves, and then we'll just chat. Again, what stood out maybe today or in this season as we prepare to walk in Lent together. Let me pray for us, and I'll let you be quiet. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, that you, even on your way, Jesus on his way to the cross to do this for all of us, stops, sees a man's life who's about to be taken and takes on his life for him. Gives us a picture of what is true for all of us. May our lives be a response to what Christ has done. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, just a couple minutes of quiet with yourself, and then um, I'll just say, hey, chat, and then you can talk amongst yourselves.